<laughs> well, again, I'm so glad for you guys to be here this morning. Uh, I have really been looking forward to this series that we are actually kicking off today. For those of you that have been around New Life for any length of time, I know, you know, I say that every single time. But part of that is because every single series that we do, every single weekend, is designed intentionally with one big idea that you can grasp and walk out of here with, and that if you apply it to your life, it will actually make every single one aspect of your life and your relationships better in your day-to-day life, your day-to-day relationship with God, or your pursuit of God as you're trying to figure out what you believe. And today, we're starting the series with, with what may be the most outrageous story in the entire Bible. Uh, most of this series comes out of the Old Testament book of Judges, and to give you context for where this lands in history, most of you have heard of Moses. Uh, Moses had led the Israelites out of Egypt, and then Moses dies, and then Joshua leads them into what's referred to as the Promised Land. He gets them settled in, and then Joshua dies, and then for about three hundred, and then three hundred thirty-three, three hundred thirty years later. Israel becomes a monarchy under King Saul and then King David. And again, most of you have heard the name King David. So the book of Judges takes place during this time between Joshua's death and the time they became a monarchy. So during this 330-year period, this time period, they were more like a commonwealth, kind of like the 13 original colonies where they had no central government, that uh, they had a common ancestry, a common language, uh, common religion, uh, but they were 12 distinct tribes. And if you know any Bible history, then you know pro- probably know there's a guy named Abraham. Abraham had a son named Isaac, who had a son named Jacob. Jacob's name was renamed Israel, and he had 12 what? Sons. He had 12 sons, that's right. And each of those 12 sons grew up into ultimately what was like their own individual tribe or like their own little nation, but all part of Israel. So during the book of Judges, you have these 12 tribes who are inhabiting the land of Canaan, or what's referred to as the promised land, and there's no king because the way it was supposed to work was God was uh, God is king, he's given them his law, and they were supposed to obey his law. And then God would raise up these judges who would essentially rule, but they weren't kings. Their only authority was to distribute and, and enforce the law and make sure it was kept, and in some case to deliver the nation from their enemies, because the nation of Israel during this period, they had something in common with you and with me. They didn't like being told what to do. No one likes being told what to do. So they just abandoned God's law. They essentially embraced and began to, to, to live and to operate just like the cultures around them. And besides, it's like the law, it's like written down somewhere far away, and there was no king, there was no government. So basically, everyone just did whatever they wanted to. And what that means is they would go through this cycle. They would disobey God's law. It would result in disaster. They would cry out for help. And then God would send a deliverer. And they go, wow, we are never doing that again. And then before long, they would disobey again. There would be another disaster. They would cry out for help. God would send a deliverer. They'd say, I'm never going to do that again. Side note, does that sound familiar at all? All right. I know that was kind of my life. The interesting thing about the book of Judges is that even if you're not a religious person or you used to be a Christian or you're from some other religion, here's something that we all have in common. At some point in your life, you disobeyed something. You disobeyed a religious law that maybe you grew up with. 
Uh, you disobeyed your parents. You disobeyed your conscience. Your conscience said, don't do it. Don't do it. Here I go. I'm doing it. We do it anyways. And then either immediately or sometime after, there's a disaster. Like, oh, my man, oh man I have made, I've made a mess. I am in trouble. It, because you disobeyed God or your conscience or your parents or, or religion, whatever it was. And then it's like, okay, I need help. I need help. And somebody came along. And they gave you a break, or they gave you a second chance, or they bailed you out, or they paid a fine. Someone helped you get professional help. Somebody forgave you of something. And then you said, I am never doing that again. And you didn't for about a week or about a month. And then it all started over again. So the book of Judges is about a nation for, who for 330 years just got into trouble, got delivered. Got into trouble, got delivered. Got trouble, got delivered. So much my life. So there's so much about this book that reflects in many ways your life and mine. But at the end of the book, there's this crazy story on just how bad things had gotten in the nation. And it reflects what happens to a community or a nation or even an individual where they ultimately decide, you know what, I'm just going to do what I'm going to do. It's my life. You do what you think is right. I'm going to do what I think is right, but don't tell me what's right and wrong because what's right for you may not be right for me. It's my life. So just mind your own business. And this went on for 330 years, over three centuries, and then the whole thing just devolves into this cesspool of a story that's just so horrible, and it's how the book of Judges ends. Now remember, that the nation is divided into 12 individual tribes. Each tribe, to give you perspective, has hundreds of thousands of people that are part of these individual tribes. They're all different parts of what, in different parts of what we would consider the Holy Land. So the story begins like this. Now, a guy who was part of the tribe of Levi, a Levite, who lived in a remote area in the hill country of Ephraim, took a concubine. In other words, he went and got himself a woman, okay? A concubine was like a girlfriend slash servant slash wife slash, slash bed buddy, okay? Fill in the blank. It was legal, but it was absolutely against the customs of the Israelites. This was something that they had inherited from the Canaanites who lived in the land that they were supposed to stay away from. We'll talk about that in a few weeks. But she was from Bethlehem and Judah, which was another tribe. They lived together for a while. But she was unfaithful to him. She left him and went back to her parents' home in Bethlehem. Well, four months go by, and we don't know if he just got done being angry or if he got lonely and got cold at night, but he decided, I got to go get my concubine. So we're told that her husband went to her to persuade her to return. So he travels way south through the area of where the Benjamites live, another, this, this tribe, down to an area of the tribe of Judah, where Bethlehem was, and he shows up at the father's house and says, hey, I'm here to get my woman and your daughter. The father says, the concubine-in-law says, hey, I'm not really super excited to see her go, so why don't you just stay and relax? They stay up all night drinking. They just stay up all night. They drink and drink and drink. It goes, goes on for days. The guy wakes up every morning. He's super hungover. You know, it's finally by noon, he's seeing straight. He's like, hey, we need to hit the road. The concubine-in-law is like, hey, just, just stay, relax. You're not feeling good. Let's eat, let's drink, stay till tomorrow. So they'd stay up again all night drinking, wakes up with a hangover. The concubine-in-law is like, hey, just relax, recuperate, refresh. Uh, they do this till noon. And then finally it's like, hey, we need to go. No, it's too late, just stay. Well, this goes on day after day after day. 
And finally, the Levite's like, okay, middle of the day, I don't care, we got to go. So he loads up. We're told it's a Levite, his concubine, a male servant, and two donkeys. And they hit the road, okay? They're heading back to Ephraim, and they're going to go back and try and work on this relationship. They leave late in the day. They're on the journey. The sun begins to go down, and they end up in a, at the gates of a town called Gibeah. And now, Gibeah is where the tribe, or in where the tribe of Benjamin lives. They arrive, at, and in that time and in that culture, the laws of hospitality were, if you arrived into a village or a town, and you had no friends or family there, then you, uh, you went to the town square, where usually there would be a well. Because, see, there's, there's no, these are villages. These aren't big cities. So there's no hotels, no restaurants, no Airbnb. So we're supposed to just go to the town square, go to the well, and then you wait. And at some point, somebody that lives in that town would see you as a stranger, walk over, introduce themselves, and then invite you into their home, especially if you were an Israelite. Well, everyone just ignores them. They just keep walking on by. The sun is set. It's it's dark. They're out in the middle of this town. No one's saying anything. The night goes on. Finally, this guy comes to the gate. He sees them there by the well, a stranger. He goes and introduces himself, and they discover that he's also a Levite from the same area that that the other guy's from, but now he lives in Gibeah, the town where they are. So he says, hey, you're from my hometown. Come stay at my place. And this is where the story gets weird because the author tells us that evening Some of the wicked men of the city surrounded the house, pounding on the door. They shouted to the old man who owned the house, bring out the man who came to your house so that we can have sex with him. Now, this was not so much an issue of gratification as it was humiliation. Okay, and in that time and in that culture, to humiliate another man, Canaanite men, especially Canaanite warriors, they would oftentimes do this. In fact, this carried into Greek culture even into the first century. So they're pounding on the door, basically saying, we don't like strangers, nobody invited them, we're going to teach him such a lesson that when he leaves, he will tell people, don't ever go to Gibeah. Okay, they do not like strangers. The owner of the house, he goes outside and he said to them, no, my friends, don't be so vile, since this man is my guest, okay? Again, laws of hospitality. He's a guest in my home, he's under my roof, therefore I'm responsible for him, he's under my protection. Don't do this outrageous thing. So at this point, the homeowner looks like he's going to be the hero. But then the story gets even stranger. Look, he says, here's my virgin daughter and his concubine. I'll bring them out to you now, and you can use them and do to them whatever you wish. But as for this man, don't do such an outrageous thing. Now, we listen to that like, outrageous, like, like it's all outrageous, okay? Like, what, what are you talking about? But the men would not listen to him. So the man took his concubine and sent her outside to them. And I decided to not put up the next half of this verse or the verse that follows, because what happened to that woman through the night was horrific. The next morning, the Levite wakes up, he opens the door, and there lays his concubine, dead as a result of the horrifying abuse that she had experienced all the night before. So he takes her body, he puts it on his donkey, and he and his male servant make their way back home to Ephraim. And he is so, so angry. The the laws of hospitality were horribly violated. His concubine was murdered uh, in the most brutal brutal way imaginable. He almost lost his own life, so he decides something must be done. So he writes a letter to all the civic leaders of the 12 tribes. 
He outlines a story, but then he thinks, I'm a nobody, no one knows who I am, no one's going to do anything because of a letter. So he comes up with an idea to get everyone's immediate and undivided attention. He chops the body of his concubine up into 12 different pieces. He wraps each part up, up and attaches a letter to each one, hires some servants, and sends those packages out to every tribe in Israel. I'm telling you, this is why you need to read the Bible, okay? It's not boring, all right? Uh, three or four days later in all these cities, someone went to the leaders said, hey, there's a FedEx delivery. Uh, you got a package. He opens it up. There's an arm or a leg or a hand or a head, you know, whatever. We don't know. Uh, but this letter, and then this letter that explains this horrible, horrible deed that has happened in the nation. Well, the nation is outraged. They're like, oh my gosh, we have sunk to an all-time low. I mean, yes, things have been bad in all the tribes and between the tribes. We've been overrun by the Canaanites and the Philistines and all of these other kinds of people. But that one tribe would do this to another, like, this has crossed the line. So the writer tells us that everyone who saw it was saying to one another, such a thing has never been seen or done, not since the day the Israelites came up out of Egypt. Just imagine, we must do something. We've reached a brand new low. So the tribes decide they're going to put together an army. So they send messages out to all the other tribes and villages, and, and they are told, you have to send armed representatives. We're going to show up in force outside the gates of Gibeah, and we're going to demand that they bring out the perpetrators of this crime so that they can be brought to justice. And an important note, when they gather, all of the fathers, they make an oath. And the oath is that we will never let any of our daughters marry a Benjamite, ever. So they make this oath. That matters later. So the army forms, they gather outside the gates of Gibeah, and they demand that the Benjamites turn over the perpetrators of this crime, but the Benjamites weren't having it. Because prior to the 11 tribes gathering this army, uh, Benjamin, they'd already, they also got a letter and a package, so they had reached out to all of their men and all their warriors and called them in, and they had lined up around the city of Gibeah and said, we are not going to give you the perpetrators of this crime. And in response, the gathered army attacks the city, but on the first day of battle, the Benjamites kill over 22,000 men. And they drive the 11 nations away in defeat. The second day, the same thing happens, and 18,000 soldiers are killed from the gathered armed forces. And the perpetrators of this crime are not brought to justice. It looks like that the Benjamites are going to win. They're going to drive away the other 11 tribes. But on the third day of battle, the army comes up with a strategy. So they gather the army. The gathered army, they do a fake out. They feign defeat. They begin to run to make it look like that they're retreating. The Benjamites get all excited, chase after them far from the city. But then another group of Israelites were in hiding, and they ambush the city. And they begin killing every little thing, every living thing. And they set the city on fire, everything they can. When the Benjamites, they look back, they see the city on fire, they begin to panic, they run back to the city, but now the battle turns. And at this point, for the 11 tribes, tribes their bloodlust is up. They are angry. They have had enough. They burn the city to the ground. They kill every living thing, every man, every woman, every child, every animal. And then they begin to go city by city by city through the tribe of Benjamin and kill every man, every woman, every child, every animal, and burn every city to the ground until the whole region of Benjamin 
is nothing but scorched earth. But from the Benjamites, Benjamites uh, that were part of the original army, 600 of them escaped into the desert into a remote area from the battle uh, that took place. And for four months, they're scared to death to, to come near or to show their faces and to come out of hiding because they're sure they'll be killed. Well, the bloodlust of the other 11 tribes and the, and the adrenaline, it begins to diminish and several weeks go by. And then finally, it dawns on these 11 tribe leaders, what have we done? We have just wiped out one of our tribes, an entire tribe of Israel. Now instead of 12, there are only 11 tribes. And they begin to say, what have we done? Oh God, there's been a genocide. We, we've killed everyone and, and everything. We burned down every city. And then finally, someone raises the hand and says, well, actually, there's 600 of them left. They fled out into the desert, into a remote area. I mean, perhaps we can coax them back out. But somebody else raises their hand and says, yeah, but the problem is they're all dudes. Okay, and we made, a, we made an oath that we're not going to let any of our daughters marry a Benjamite man so they won't have any wives, which means that they won't have any, be able to have any children so that they can rebuild their tribe. What can we do? Well, and someone else raises their hand and says, well, are there any cities that didn't respond to our call to send representatives to fight alongside us? And somebody says, well, yeah, Jabesh Gilead. And they go, hey, is there any representatives from Jabesh Gilead here? And nobody responds. So the 11 tribes, they put together a smaller army of 12,000. They send them to the city of Jabesh Gilead with these instructions. Kill every man, kill every child, kill every woman that's not a virgin. Burn the city to the ground. Save the young girls, save all that you can, kidnap them, bring them back, and we're going to give those to the men who are in hiding as wives. So that way we don't completely annihilate the tribe of Benjamin. I'm telling you, you should read your Bible. I mean, this is like sickening, right? Like to us. So that's what they do. They annihilate the whole city. They kidnap the young girls. They bring them back, send a peace offering to those that are hiding, the hiding soldiers, coax them to come out of hiding. Hey, we're not that mad, at, mad anymore. We're so sorry that we took things so far. And we have some good news and we have some bad news. Okay, the bad news is that we killed your parents, your brothers, your sisters, and your kids. Okay, burned down your cities. But the good news is we've kidnapped some women for you to make your wives, whether they're compliant or not. So that way you can start fresh. Okay, but a little more bad news. Okay, there's about 600 of you. But there's only about 400 of them. So not everyone's getting a new wife in this lottery, okay? Then somebody said, well, I've got an idea. Uh, in a few days, there's a festival in Shiloh. And at, as part of the festival, all of the young women from the area, they come out and they dance as part of this festival. So uh, we'll let all the men, we'll tell them, the ones that didn't get a wife in their first wife lottery, okay, you go hide in the woods, and when all the women come out and do their festival dance in the field, you can rush out and take one of them and make them your wife. And then we'll tell the fathers that they haven't violated their oath because they didn't give their daughters to be married, okay, they were kidnapped. And then we'll tell the fathers it's a good thing because we're actually saving one of the nearly lost tribes of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. And it's like, how insane is this? So this is what they do. Like they're hiding in the woods. The young ladies, they come out into their festival dance. And these Benjamite men who, again, didn't get a wife in the first wife lottery, they go run out, grab themselves a woman. And then all these guys with their new wives basically over their shoulders march back with all the other surviving Benjamite men and their kidnapped wives into the smoldering ruins of the land of Benjamin to start over and rebuild and populating the scorched earth 
And then the book of Judges ends. Like, there's no heroes. There's nothing good. And some of you, some of you were raised in, in Christian homes where your parents read to you a Bible story at night when you went to bed. They skipped this one, didn't they? Okay, some of you, you're, you're raising kids. Like, I don't think, we'll save that one for Halloween. Like, it's like, Dad, I want to hear the story about the concubine and the chainsaw. No, no. So, I mean, the ending, it's just like the ending of this unbelievable story. In the final verse of the book of Judges, this is what the author writes, and this is how it ends. In those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. To, to put it in a different way, in those days, there was no binding moral consensus. There was nothing that defined this is right and this is wrong. So everyone just followed their own moral compass and just simply did whatever it was that they thought was right. Because after all, it's my life. Now you could go home today and read through this whole story. I could retell this whole story and at every point along the way, the amazing thing that you would see is every single character throughout did exactly what they thought was the right thing to do. But when you and I stand back from all these right decisions, this is, it's chaos. At some points, it's, it's, it's horrific. It leaves us speechless. It's like, they what? I mean, yeah, so the men at Gibeah were like, listen, we don't like strangers. Okay, this is our town. And we have the right to decide who stays here and who doesn't. So send that guy out. We're going to teach him a lesson so that our reputation will go out. This is how we're going to protect our cities, my, our city from strangers. We're going to humiliate him so badly that not only will he never come back, but anybody that knows him will never come to our city. We have a right to do that. It's the right thing to do. So they pound on the door, and the Levite in there is like, well, honey, if you hadn't run off, in the first place, if your dad hadn't got me drunk every night, all right, we'd be home safe and sound. So this is your fault. I don't know what's going to happen, but out you go. Good luck. Besides, it's just a woman. She's my property. And this is her fault. So this is the right thing to do. And then when she's murdered, well, there has to be justice. Like, what? No, there has to be justice. And I can't just write a letter They'll be like, well, sorry, bad things happen all the time, so I'm going to chop her body up. That'll get people's attention. I think this is the right thing to do. And then the whole nation comes together to demand justice because it's the right thing to do. And the Benjamites were like, hey, you can't just come in here and take our people because you feel like they did something wrong. That's not for you to decide. That's for us to decide. So it's the right thing for us to do to defend him and defend them. And then the rest of Israel thinks, well, the right thing to do is to teach Give you a lesson. In fact, the best thing to do is teach the whole nation a lesson. It's the right thing to do to kidnap, to kidnap some wives for these guys out in the desert from Jabesh Gilead and, that didn't participate. So it's the right thing to do to kill every, every man, every child, every non-virgin woman. Like Save the single ladies, all the single ladies. Put your hands up. And it's the right thing to do. It's just the right thing to give them to these men that are coming in from the desert. I mean, at every point along the way, at every point along the way, you drop in and isolate it from everything else. Everyone did what they thought was right in their own eyes. And it was chaotic, and it was destructive, and even horrific. And here's why we're going to talk about this. Because there is some of this in you, and there's some of this in me. There's something in me that says, hey, that wants to say, it's, hey, it's my life. I'll do what I want to do. 
You worry about your life. You worry about your family. I'll worry about my life and family. I'll manage mine. This is what's right for me, whether or not it's right for you. In fact, this is kind of the unspoken part of the American dream. We want the freedom to do what we want, when we want, with whom we want. Because I'm an American. I can do what I want, when I want, with whom I want. I mean, this is the American dream. And I want to be so autonomous that I can do what I want, when I want, with whom I want. And I don't want anyone telling me what to do. Now, because we're civilized... And because we're Americans, we had one little condition, as long as it doesn't hurt anyone. Now, there's lots of problems with this, and we're going to talk about them for the next few weeks, but I want to get your, kind of your mind going, because we live in a culture that every single day of our lives, in, in every form and fashion, through advertising and media and music, whatever it is, every single day there's something. There's something that reaches into your heart, your conscience, and ultimately into your emotions that stirs this part of you and stirs this part of me, that wants to do what you want, when you want, with who you want. And this is the part that we add, again, in our Western-minded culture. No one can tell me what to do as long as I'm not hurting anyone. But there's a few problems with this. The first problem is only the super-rich can afford this. Okay, because after a while, you're going to need an attorney. After a while, you're going to need an army of attorneys especially in the United States, to do what you want, when you want, with whoever you want. So it's really just for the super rich. And, and the other thing about this is the only people that actually literally preach this message are these super rich entertainment types. The ones who write the songs and write the narratives and create the TV shows and create the, the movies. And we listen to these songs and it stirs something in us like, yes, I mean, that's me. And we watch these characters. And it's like, oh, to, to be like him or to be like her to have that kind of power, to have that level of freedom, to have that kind of financial or sexual freedom, it stirs something in us. So we, we buy the music, we buy the tickets, we stream the shows, and we spend billions to entertain ourselves with it. So who can blame them about sing, for singing or acting it out? But in the real world, you never, you never hear people who have real world, real world experiences preaching this message. You'll never see a fifth grade teacher in their class on Friday, go to class. Now, class, before we dismiss for the weekend, just remember the key to happiness is to do what you want, when you want, with who you want, and don't let anyone tell you what to do. Have a great weekend. See you Monday, okay? You'll never see a DCF worker sit down with parents and go, now, we've had to take your kids from you because you're completely irresponsible. But the key to getting your children back are for, is for you to continue to do what you want, when you want, with who you want. Okay, that, as soon as you master that, we're going to give you your kids back. You never hear a parole officer or a judge preaching this because people who live in the consequence side of this know better. Another reason this is a problem is that this always works better for men than it does women. Ever notice that? I mean, see, in a world and a culture where men do what they want, when they want, with whom they want, eventually women become objects possessions, and profit centers every single time. I mean, think about this. Everywhere that women have rights, they've had to fight for them. Why? Because when men do what's right in their own eyes, where there is no king and no moral consensus, and it's just their own individual moral compass that guides and directs their lives, women always suffer. 
as do children. The other reason this doesn't work is the presumption that we want to tack on to the end of this. I'm going to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, with who I want to do it. As long as it doesn't hurt anyone, this is impossible. And the reason is because eventually you hurt you. And when you hurt you, you hurt someone. You have hurt yourself. And ultimately, you're going to be mastered by something. I mean, think about this. The, the thing that has mastered you that you hope never, no one ever finds out about, or maybe they already have, but the thing that has mastered you, a debt, a habit you can't seem to break, a toxic or inappropriate relationship you just can't figure out how to get out of it, a relationship that maybe you don't want your wife or your husband to know about, it's mastered you. And every day it's like, how do I get out of this? How am I going to get out of this? Maybe it's alcohol. Maybe it's a drug addiction. Maybe it's porn addiction. Whatever the addiction and it all began with, I'm going to do with what I want. When I, this thing that mastered you began with an expression of your freedom. You said, I'm going to do what I want, when I want, with who I want, where I want. And now you can't do what you want, when you want, because you've been mastered by the very thing, the very thing that was an expression of your misguided freedom, and, and you've hurt you. But it's not just you that you hurt. You hurt the people with you. That's why as parents, okay, we freak out, especially when they're teenagers, we freak out about our kids' friends. Our kids go, you know, listen, I'm, I'm, I'm not going to do that. Yeah, but when they do that, you're going to get hurt. You're going to get caught up in the shrapnel of that as well. Not only that, but you hurt the people that care about you. I mean, if you're a teenager, you can't possibly hurt you without hurting your parents or hurting others. It's impossible. If you have a husband or a wife that loves you, you can't hurt you without hurting them. It's not possible. If you have living parents, you can't hurt you without hurting people who love you. You can't do what you want, when you want, where you want, and not hurt anyone. And we don't think about this. We don't think about this. You, you hurt the people that are coming along after you. You hurt the next generation. So I'll, I'll get a little personal, okay? okay some of you, you're a little weird. Okay, you're, you're a little dysfunctional, you're a little off, you're, you're kind of odd in certain ways, and, and I am too. You've got some ways that you handle yourself in life or relationships or interacting with other people, and it, it seems to just create problems, and it pushes other people away. You've got some things about you, you don't even know why you do it. Some of you, there's, you can just be so hard to get along with. For some of you, your obsessive compulsiveness, it's a problem, and now that you're past a certain age and you've got access to the internet and done a little homework, you've figured it out, traced it back. Some of you, you, you just have behaviors that hurt and even sabotage some of your relationships. And some of you, you understand the reason why you're a little off, the reason why there's a part of you that's a little broken or maybe very broken is your parents. Because somewhere along the way, your mom or your dad or both decided, I'm going to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, the way I want, with who I want, and it's no one else's business. But they didn't factor you in. And they would have said in that moment or in that season of life, it's not hurting anyone, but it hurt you. And it continues to hurt you. Maybe possibly in every area of your life. See, it's a myth. It's the myth to think that we can do what we want when we want and not hurt others. And especially if you're a Christian, why would you aspire to this? 
What's the win? How come we never hear this? I should be able to do what I want, when I want, with whom I want, as long as it helps someone. Like, where's that? Why wouldn't we aspire to greatness? Why wouldn't we harness our passions to make the world a better place? Why wouldn't we decide to get, we're going to do as much as we can rather than try to get away with as much as we can? Because in the end, we're all hypocrites. Because even though we might not say it out loud, we think it inside, listen, I, I want to do what I want to do, when I want, until disaster strikes. And then what do we want? We want help. We want, I mean, remember as a kid, some of you, your dad said, don't, 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 don't ever, and you did it anyways. And then who'd you have to call? <laughs> dad. Dad, I'm in trouble. I need you, babe. You know, but, but before that moment, it's like, my dad's an idiot. My dad's an idiot. My dad's old. He's an old man, whatever. Like, he doesn't get it. And we ignore our dad. We ignore our parents. But then we find ourselves in trouble, and we find ourselves on the phone, and who do we call? Dad, I'm in trouble. Or, Dad, I'm at the police station. It's not a field trip. You know, ladies, you know, your, your mom or maybe your dad were like, honey, stay away from him. Stay away from him. But, but mom, you don't get it. You don't see him the way that I see him. That's right. <laughs> you can possibly understand. And then who do you have to call? The very person you rejected. Now, Jesus introduced us and invited us to call God our Heavenly Father. And that ultimately, any, any good thing, any, including any good rule, any good insight into morality, any insight in how do you make a relationship between two people or a group of people better or best, that all of that comes from a good and a loving Heavenly Father. And when we do what's right in our own eyes and just dismiss and disrespect God and then the world falls apart, what do we do? A lot of us, we pray. It's like, God, if you're there, if you're paying attention, I know it's been like three years, you know, Christmas and Easter, but if you're there, I could use some help. And one of the amazing things that we're going to see in the theme of the book of Judges is that every time the nation of Israel disobeyed God and then experienced a disaster and then turned to God and said, God, we're in trouble, we're need, we need help, God, the same God who had been ignored, rejected, embarrassed, disobeyed, abandoned, that very same God would respond and he would intervene and he would engage and he would send deliverers. As we talk about this over the next few weeks, as you discover where you are in the cycle, I mean, the great news is God, who Jesus invited us to call Father, will step into the chaos, even the chaos you created by ignoring the very same God. So here's the question. Here's where we're going for the next few weeks. If you were God, how would you respond? If you were God, how would you respond to a group of people that had decided, it's my life, okay? Thanks, God but I'm going to do what I want, when I want, where I want, with who I want. No one's going to tell me what to do. How would you respond to that? And if God really is God, a God who loves us, and the perfection of Father, a heavenly Father, how would you expect Him to respond to you, to, to us, to, to a nation, to a culture that seems to increasingly lean in the direction of, I've got my own moral compass, I'm really not that interested in yours. And here's the fascinating thing. In just a few weeks, our cities, our nation is going to pause and celebrate the birth of a king. 
And we're all going to pause and go, wow, and Jesus, and Christmas time, and King, and David, and Star, and Bethlehem. And there's going to be like this pause in our chaotic lives. And maybe you've never thought about this this way, but we're going to celebrate the birth of a king in our nation, a nation that much like Israel would be quick to say, we have no king, we don't want a king, it's my life, and I don't want anyone else telling me what to do. It'll be the celebration of the birth of a king in a nation that seems more intent than ever on doing what's right in its own eyes, which is just a little fascinating. Let me pray for us. Father, I, I acknowledge, I'm the first to acknowledge that there is this thing in me. And so I pray for every, all of us that would engage over the next few weeks that you would do a work in us to help us to identify the downfalls with this, the downfalls that we've already experienced in our own lives and lead us to something better for ourselves, for the people around us, and for the next generation. But quite honestly, we're just stubborn, self-centered creatures. We can't do it without your help. So help us to do that, Father. It's in the name of Jesus that I pray. Amen.